Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for February 23rd, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including uh, news about a Blair Witch and Dark Tower TV shows, a Making a Murderer sequel, the first reactions to Duncan Jones' Mute, and in our feature presentation, we'll be talking about the best, weirdest, and craziest foreign films you can stream now. This is Peter Schroeder, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Writers, Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's uh, dive into the news first, but let's, uh, you know, we, we have a trio of TV stories for you. Let's start first with Blair Witch. Blair Witch Project is getting a TV series in development at Lionsgate. Chris, what do we know? Yeah, so uh, last year, Eduardo Sanchez, who's one of the directors of the original Blair Witch Project, uh, dropped a hint that there might be a Blair Witch TV series in the works. And now it's been reported that uh, Lionsgate, who owns the Blair Witch franchise, they're launching this new uh, Studio L brand, which is devoted to streaming digital content. And they're developing several uh, TV series and original films. And one of the the new TV series they're developing is a Blair Witch series. Um, There's no details on what it's going to be, what it's you know, what the plot is going to be. Um, I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm hoping they delve into the mythology because even though the films don't go into it that much, there's actually a really rich, complex Blair Witch mythology that was created in all these like tie-in books and comic books and stuff that was released when the original film came out. And I had all of it because I was obsessed with the original Blair Witch Project. So I'm hoping they do that and they don't just try and remake the movie as a TV series. Chris, when the original film came out, they were presenting it as if it was a real thing. There was a real website. There was a documentary on the sci-fi channel. Did you believe it was real? No. I. Uh, by the time I saw the film, I knew for a fact it was it was not real. Um, I can't really remember if when I first heard about it, if I did think it was real, but I think I found out pretty quickly it was all, you know, part of the marketing campaign, but that didn't make me like it any less. I loved the original Blair Witch Project. I still do. I know over time it sort of developed this sort of poor reputation as overrated, but I, I love it. 
I remember when the original Blair Witch came out in theaters, and it uh, at first it was only playing at like the small independent theaters. Uh, nowadays, you know, movies are so available, at least in the cities I am in. Um, but I was living in Massachusetts in a, a town called Natick, and I had to travel to Boston to the Landmark Theater in uh, near Harvard Square. And I remember so excited to see this movie. You know, online ticketing wasn't a thing at that time. And uh, me and my friends went there and all the screenings that night were sold out. Uh, So we did what anybody would do at that point. And we bought tickets to another movie with plans to sneak into the Blair Witch Project. Um, A movie around the same time. I think the manager kind of knew what we were up to. So he followed us into the theater while we watched oh, the no. other, yeah, while we watched the other movie, we sat there in the other movie, and it was like, I forget what movie it was. Like this was like, the Landmark Theater would notoriously show like you know, uh, really obscure foreign films. And, like you know, it was a time in my life that I was not educated to that kind of film. Uh, so we were sitting there in a movie with like subtitle. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. We sat there for like ten minutes while the manager was like standing by the door watching us before we decided to leave and go ask for our money back. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we didn't have a chance to get to the Blair Witch. Uh, HG, do you have any experience with the Blair Witch Project? No, I was never really in that sort of um, the phenomenon that Blair Witch took over for pop culture. I was kind of separated from it. It came out when I was still relatively young and not really uh, keeping up with a lot of movies, much less horror. So I kind of found out about all the the sort of secretive marketing and everything after the fact, which I find really fascinating. But yeah, I, I completely missed the boat, on, the boat on that one. I wonder if they could do this as a found footage. I mean, Blair Witch is one of the first, like, you know, big found footage movies. Uh, has there been a found footage TV series, Chris? I can't think of one. I'm sure someone has tried it by now. It just seems too. Yeah. Like, uh, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, and I, I'm hoping they don't do that. Not, not that I have anything against found footage, but you know, the new Blair Witch, the Adam Wingard film, that was found footage, and I just, it didn't do anything for me. It, it feel, it feel like it's lost that charm. Like it, it was perfect for the first movie because at the time, found footage wasn't that big. It wasn't, you know, it was like relatively new. But since then, it's been so overdone that I, I want them to try something different. Yeah, my, my problem with found footage is. Uh, you know, I like the creative constraints of it, but uh, at times you want to tell the story and it getting in the way of explaining why someone's recording and why they're cutting the camera at certain moments. It like uh, as a person who thinks of the logic behind things, it bothers me quite a bit uh, because usually they throw that logic out the window for the storytelling, which is, you know, good for the movie, uh, but uh, bad for someone who's like. Yeah, why did he put the camera down then? Why are we cutting to this moment? Why is he recording this intimate conversation that he shouldn't be recording? Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it kind of bothers me. But, um, yeah, let's move on to another TV series adaptation, and that is of The Dark Tower. Amazon is going to be making a Dark Tower TV series. Uh, this, to me, like, registers as, like, Amazon is like, well, Netflix has Stranger Things. Hulu is going to have Castle Rock. We need to get into the Stephen King game. I guess we could do Dark Tower. Chris, you wrote about this for the site. What is going on here? 
Right. So before the Dark Tower movie came out last year, there was all there were already plans to make a Dark Tower TV series. But after the film did very poorly at the box office and was pretty much critically uh, destroyed, no one liked it. It seemed sort of inevitable that they would just give up on this idea of a Dark Tower TV series. But it's apparently still happening, and now Amazon uh, has the rights to it. Amazon is sort of on this like spending spree right now because they want not just Amazon, but everyone wants their own original streaming content now. That's that's the future. That's what everyone wants. You know, Netflix has they're uh, leading the way this way now. Everyone wants to compete with Netflix. So Amazon, everyone knows by now, Amazon snapped up the rights to uh, a Lord of the Rings series, and they they paid a lot of money for that, but. Because basically uh, they, they wanted their own Game of Thrones, basically. Right. They want their own Game of Thrones, and they also bought um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, uh, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, and Dar- The Dark Tower. Now, it's not clear if So basically this Westworld is... and Stranger Things. They basically want to copy what others are doing successfully, but uh, yeah. Right. And The Dark Tower has a very uh, Game of Thrones-ish sort of mythology to it, so... This could also just be part of that, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, when he the reason he bought the uh, the Lord of the Rings series is he literally said he wanted Amazon to have their own Game of Thrones. So that's my guess why they also bought this, too. They're, they just want that Game of Thrones fantasy uh, anthology epic uh, market cornered. So that could explain it. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's no news on how they're approaching this. If they're going to just throw out everything from the film, I'm guessing they will. If they're going to start fresh, but we'll see. Yeah, at one point they were going to do like a series of films with the t- a TV series filling in the gaps in between each film, which was like an inter- interesting and ambitious thing. I think that's probably out the window at this point. Chris, you are a big fan of the books, uh, correct? I'm a big fan of Stephen King. I'm not a huge fan of the Dark Tower series. Uh, I'm not as big as on them as other thing, other people, but I, I love Stephen King in general, though. So is this something you'd be looking forward to? It really depends. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of cool stuff from the books that could make a cool series, but the books are really, really weird. They're not like, it's not really mainstream sort of stuff. It's not like, you know, it's, even though it's sort of like Game of Thrones, it's a lot stranger than that. And I don't know, I don't know if anyone can really translate it that well. So I, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why the movie didn't work is because they tried to make it very mainstream and very accessible to general audiences. And what sort of makes those books interesting is how weird and on nor you know how they don't appeal to general audiences so i don't really know how they're going to pull this off but i'm i'll give anything stephen king related a chance so we'll see ht did you see the dark tower movie i did unfortunately (laughs) so after seeing that movie uh would you be interested in a tv series I have close to zero interest in a TV series. I even I read the book too, only the first book, and I did not especially like it. It's it's kind of sad actually because I've read several Stephen King books, but for some reason I always just pick up the ones that are the bad ones. So I I, I feel bad because I do like the a lot of the movie adaptations of his books, but yeah, The Dark Tower I have no interest in it. I did not like the book. I did not like the movie. So I. They could only go up from here, honestly. 
<laughs> um, well, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, and the third in our trio of TV stories is they are making a making a murderer sequel called Convicting a Murderer. Uh, Chris, what do we know about it? Yes. Yeah, so everyone. I feel like everyone watched Making a Murder. It was huge. It became this sort of like water cooler show where everyone was talking about it for weeks and weeks. Uh, but after it came out, the the filmmakers and the show in general got a fair share of criticism saying they manipulated facts. They left a lot of stuff out. They sort of slanted it towards one side to make it seem like, you know, the main subject, Stephen Avery, was a lot more innocent than people say he really was. So uh, there's a new documentary series called Convicting a Murderer, which presents sort of the flip side of that coin. It says, you know, here's what making a murderer left out. Here's what you didn't know. Maybe Stephen Avery is guilty. Um, This isn't coming to Netflix. It hasn't found a home yet. So Netflix is actually developing their own making a murderer season two. So this is sort of like competing with that. I I don't know where this is going to end up. I doubt Netflix is going to want a show that's sort of like saying this other Netflix show is all wrong. So I don't know where it's going to end up, but that's where it is right now. That is so strange. And I, I know, you know, everybody watched Making a Murderer, but do you really think, you know, years later now people are going to be interested in seeing this other side of the story? I think they might. I mean, yeah, it came out a few years ago. It's, you know, it's sort of, it feels a lot longer than it did come out, but. I don't know. I feel like if there's enough buzz, people will watch it because I sort of remember when Making a Murderer came out the first weekend, no one was really talking about it at first. It sort of slowly like word of mouth made it become bigger than it was when it first came out. So if this gets that same word of mouth, it could turn into that. But I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, Okay, talking about Netflix, uh, they did release Duncan Jones new movie Mute. Uh, today, right? It came out today. Uh, the yes. first reviews hit the web, and HT did a roundup of them. What do critics think of Duncan Jones' latest movie? They are quite disappointed with it, honestly. It's one of um, a highly anticipated sci-fi project from Netflix and Duncan Jones, who was the director of Moon, uh, which was a big cult favorite and became his breakout directorial debut. Uh, and so Mute is a movie that he's been working on for, I think, 16 years now. So it's his passion project. So there's been a lot of anticipation building for it. But the movie ended up being a major disappointment and a major misfire for a lot of critics who praised its stunning visuals but called it either a Blade Runner wannabe or Blade Runner knockoff that really had nothing to say and ended up being quite disjointed and um, disappointing overall. In her own... Chris Evangelista saw saw the movie, uh, so you know instead of reading someone else's review, why don't we go to him, Chris? Uh, you know, no spoilers, but uh, did you like the movie? No, uh, my my review is up on SlashFilm.com. I encourage everyone to read it and tell me it's good. But um, I was really looking forward to this. I love. I really like Duncan Jones. Um, you know, Warcraft aside, I loved Moon. I really loved Source Code. I feel like that's a very underrated film. So I was, I was really looking forward to this. I was. I've been looking forward to this movie since 2016 when I first heard about it. Um, but, me too. but oh, I, <laughs> uh, I, I actually saw it a few days ago because I got a screener and it was embargoed until today. The review and anytime a film 
holds its embargo to the day of a release, that's never a good sign. So before I started watching it, I was nervous and that uh, nervousness was justified because it's just not very good. I mean, it looks great. It's visually appealing. The acting is really good. Paul Rudd is great in this playing probably like the most despicable character he's ever played in his career. I mean, he usually plays, you know, nice guys and he's just terrible in this, but his character is terrible. His performance is fine, but the character is terrible. But the film itself is just a, a disappointment. It's not worth the wait. I'm sorry to say. This is so disappointing because I'm a huge fan of Mute. I'm a huge fan of Source Code. Uh, you know, I was really hoping Duncan Jones could make a comeback uh, from Warcraft, which uh, obviously he made uh, in the middle of that production. You know, his father, uh, David Bowie, died. So, um, uh, you know, who knows you know, why that turned out so bad but it did um i was really hoping i was really rooting for him to make a comeback but i think this movie has like something like an eight percent of rotten tomatoes right now that doesn't sound good (laughs) so it sounds like you you are in the majority of of critics here um but i still want to check it out um despite you know when i saw the trailer it looked kind of like a blade runner knockoff it didn't look like it was doing much original um in in terms of the cool visuals of that cyberpunk world uh but Yeah, um, let's move on from Mute to our feature presentation. Uh, We will get to Annihilation afterwards, but we do have this new column on the site called uh, Pop Culture... Imports. Imports, yes, sorry. Pop Culture Imports. And uh, HT is doing this column. It's a companion column to... Chris does this column pointing out the best streaming uh, things on Netflix and all the streaming services. And uh, you know what? We, we really have done a bad job on the site of covering foreign films and television. Um, I, I, it's one of our weak points. Uh, you know, we do do a lot of independent stuff in addition to the big blockbuster stuff. And uh, our own Huai Tran Bui is a big fan of uh, foreign cinema and foreign TV shows. Uh, so you, can you tell us a little bit about why you have put together this new, uh, recurring feature on the site? Yeah. So I've always had an interest in, uh, international TV shows and movies, and I thought that this would be a great way to sort of compile all the great, the great foreign films and shows that are available right now, because there's been a sort of resurgence for them in the past decade or so, especially with Netflix partnering with so many uh, Korean, Japanese, Chinese studios to make more original content and bring over more original content to U.S. audiences. So we're seeing like more Korean dramas, more animes and more Japanese dramas pop up on Netflix every day. And it's hard sometimes to discern like what is actually worth your time and what is not. But I know that a lot of people I know, a lot of my family members almost exclusively watch Korean dramas or Chinese dramas these days, and which I find really funny. And uh, something that I want to sort of bring together in terms of just like sort of boost these really great shows and great movies to uh, a wider audience. And and I was going to oh, say, go it's, it's really hard when you look at that Netflix screen with all those tiles and, you know, you see actors, you know, and directors, you know, and then you see this weird, you know title you don't recognize like it's really weird it's really um hard that i think uh for general audiences to grasp onto like what should i watch yeah and subtitles aren't everyone's cup of tea i know but there are some really fun uh really just like enjoyable movies they're not all art house foreign flicks you know 
Yeah, in your, in your column uh, rounds up, I think, what, 10 different uh, suggestions for this month. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about five of them briefly uh, right here. But let's start off with your number one choice, which is On Body and Soul. Yes, On Body and Soul is the Hungarian Oscar nominee for Best Foreign Language Film. And it's a sort of slow burn, surreal movie about a romance between two co-workers, uh, a autistic, socially awkward woman, Maria, and a wary older man, Andre. And uh, they work at this slaughterhouse uh, in uh they work at a slaughterhouse and uh, they start sharing this same dream and they realize they're sharing this dream of uh, two deer at a lake. And um, they start to form a connection through that and it becomes this really simmering, really cold uh, romance that is kind of awkward to watch at first. But and it's very like it's also very brutal in a way it's not something that's quite like a romantic comedy or anything but it's a really beautiful film and uh very dreamy and compelling so i highly recommend it and also it's a good way to sort of catch up on the uh foreign language movies before the oscars uh hit on march 4th and chris you have also seen this film right yes i have it's uh it's very it's visually stunning um i had a lot of trouble with it because as HT said, you know, there's a slaughterhouse element and I have, I'm on this like super vegetarian kick lately. <laughs> so the minute I saw a slaughterhouse, I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to watch this, but yeah, there are moments there that are so visceral. It will, it will compete with Okja in terms of how unsettling it is. Right. I have this weird thing where, you know, I don't have any trouble with violence against humans in movies. Like I'm like, whatever. But if I see like an animal, hurt in a movie i get really upset but because i'm probably crazy i don't know but so i did have trouble i, with I, I don't think you're crazy i have some friends that will not watch a movie or will turn off a movie or tv show if that happens and not watch it again and there's actually yeah. websites out there i'm not sure if you know this chris that you can actually look up if any animals die in a movie uh like on screen just in, in case you want to avoid that kind of thing yeah, I'm probably going to have to start using that because I'm getting to that point where if I see something, I'm like, Ugh, I don't know if I feel like watching that. But beyond that, this is a really good movie. Okay, let's move on to your number two choice, HG, and that is Cantero. Yes, this is a show that I got really excited about after I watched just the first episode. So it's Kantaro, the Sweet Tooth Salaryman. It's a Japanese uh, drama from Netflix. And it's an adaptation of a manga series uh, by the same name. And it's just, it's such a bizarre, offbeat show that I kind of couldn't really process what I was watching at first. But I think the closest equivalent I could think of is probably a more ridiculous, more absurd Tampopo, uh, which is a, a Japanese film about ramen, kind of like the surreal sort of ramen western. It, it has a lot of the elements of that. So Kantaro, the Sweet Tooth Salary Man, is about a um, salesman named Kantaro who is obsessed with desserts. And he has the stoic exterior and will refuse to show anyone that he has any emotion above that. But he is obsessed with desserts so much that he creates this blog and um, goes around and playing hooky during his work days to visit dessert shops and write about them on his blog hyperbolically. So it sounds a little bit silly, but it's, and it is, but it's just like every time he eats um, a dessert, for example, he will have this face that is akin to someone having an orgasm. And then 
it will (laughs) suddenly enter this surreal dreamland where he gets doused with either syrup or his head turns into a melon and he starts like uh, trading sores with some like woman who has a head of a strawberry or something. It's ridiculous and it's so fun. And you also so compare I highly this, recommend this one. Yeah, you also compare this to uh, Amelie and Chocolate. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's just so funny that this is what is being made on uh, Japanese television. Like, it just seems like it's something that would never be made for American audiences. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised at all, actually, because um, growing up watching a lot of Japanese dramas, a lot of them are quite over the top because they are adaptations of manga or anime. So they have that similar sort of zippy, weird style that anime has. And it's definitely nothing you'll ever see on American TV. Okay, let's talk about your number three choice. That's Human Flow. Another uh, That's a Chinese film, actually. Yes, it's a documentary by Ai Weiwei, who is a... Um, a artists with really political leanings. So this is a documentary about the global refugee crisis uh, spurred on by the sort of uh, the many wars that are taking place during the in the Middle East and um, all the refugees who are flooding to Europe and who are which is starting to sort of close its borders down to these uh, countless refugees trying to make a new home for themselves. And it's a stirring, really devastating documentary that is incredibly hard to watch and it's two and a half hours long so it's even harder to watch for that but it's uh something that i highly recommend it's so beautiful to see and it's something that really galvanizes you to try to take action and um i way way too he kind of starts off as sort of a fly on the wall but towards the end of the documentary he starts becoming uh more active and it shows that he kind of is trying to take a larger part in this too so it's something that is not very it's not like a conventional documentary it has um you know, talking heads and everything, but it just, it lingers more than anything. It has shots that are, that would be by someone who is primarily an artist, not a documentarian. And it has shots that just kind of linger on people's emotions or people's um, awkward silences. In your number fourth, uh, number four film on here, is it a film or is it a TV show? Holy it's camp. It's a film. Film. Yes. It remind like the name reminds me of the this documentary that came out uh, probably ten years ago called Jesus Camp, but this is a comedy. <laughs> yes, Holy Camp is a Spanish comedy. It's on Netflix, and it's an adaptation of a really popular stage musical from Spain um, that features. It follows two girls who are somewhat promiscuous, um, who are staying at the summer camp uh, run by nuns, and they have dreams of being famous reggaetons. Regga- reggaeton singers um but uh, being at this wholesome catholic camp they're kind of uh limited from doing that and things change when maria one of the girls starts having visions of god who approaches her with uh whitney houston songs so it's a musical (laughs) Uh, not only does god sing but everyone else starts first singing (laughs) a song uh including the nuns it's a lot of fun it's a movie about friendship and um sexual identity and sort of ambitions so i i recommend it it's a fun film and it's a good not too musically inclined it's it's something that like the the songs feel very organic um and kind of silly but it's it's a good fun watch 
One of the things I love about this column that you're doing on SlashFilm.com is each entry has a watch this if you like. Um, and for this movie, it's Grease and the uh, movie Saved, which I loved uh, mm-hmm. probably from 10 years ago or something, maybe even more than that. Um, I, I, I think it gives you a it, it gives people a good idea of what they're in for by reading those things. Uh, let's get to your fifth and uh, final for this podcast uh, thing, which is. Oh, I can't even pronounce it. What is this? This is the Junji Ito collection. <laughs> Junji Ito collection. So Junji Ito is a really famous Japanese horror artist. He creates these really disturbing uh, macabre panels that go often go viral. But there are these short stories that he tells that are sometimes urban fantasy, sometimes uh, based in Japanese folklore, and they off they are mostly bent on unsettling you. Uh, he It earned him the nickname the David Cronenberg of manga because they're just so uh, disturbing in that sense. And um, now his works have gotten the anime adaptation with the Junji Ito collection, which is available on Crunchyroll. And it's a series of, I think, six episodes with a few short stories put into each half-hour episode. And it ranges from macabre and grotesque to, some, to somewhat... Uh, black comedy and tongue-in-cheek humor, but um, it doesn't quite do justice to Junji Ito's style, which is uh, very surreal and very weird, but it's very good collection of uh, anime episodes, too. I might have to check this out. I love how you say, watch this if you like American Horror Story or being traumatized. (laughs) (laughs) It's very traumatizing. Uh, but yes, you can read HT's whole article on SlashFilm.com. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, there's a lot more that we didn't cover. So if you're looking to find stuff that other people aren't watching, be you know, be the uh, the tastemaster of your group uh, and find some really uh, weird, crazy, and good foreign cinema, uh, check out um, HT's latest column. That does it for today's edition of SlashFilm Daily. HT, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBui. Chris, where can people find you? I am also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 You can find me at SlashFilm.com and at SlashFilm on Twitter. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free and send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, peter at slash film.com uh go rate and review this podcast on itunes spread the word tell your friends and we'll see you on monday